Perceptions podcast. For a particular generation, pretty much everything they know about the Vikings is summed up in one movie. How to Train Your Dragon. It's the adventures of Hiccup and his Viking village as they battle an infestation of smouldering beasts. You see, most places have mice or mosquitoes. We have... Dragons. Most people would leave. Not us. We're Vikings. We have stubbornness issues. My name's Hiccup. Great name, I know. But it's not the worst. Parents believe a hideous name will frighten off gnomes and trolls. Like our charming Viking demeanor wouldn't do that. It's good fun for kids, for sure. And it picks up on one of the persistent images in pop culture. One that's been around for centuries, actually, and continues in some of the recent Vikings series. There's Vikings, there's Vikings Valhalla, which is somehow different, my daughter tells me, and there's The Last Kingdom. In all of these, the Vikings are bold seafarers from the frozen north who for some reason woke up one day around 793 and decided to sweep down on the warmer lands of England and Europe and plunder and pillage with battle axes in one hand, terrified women in the other and double-horned helmets on their heads to boot. But not much of that is correct, it turns out including the helmets. The National Museum of Denmark has only one preserved helmet from the Viking Age, and there's no horns to be found. So let's prepare ourselves for a few undeceptions as we launch our longship onto the seas of uncertainty and discover over two in-depth episodes what we can say with some confidence about the Vikings, their origins, exploits, culture, religion, and perhaps the best-kept Viking secret their eventual decision, and it was their decision, to become Christians. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan's new book, Four Views of Heaven, edited by Michael Whitmer. Each episode, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. The so-called Viking Age begins roughly in the 8th century AD and ends in the 12th century. Let's say the 400-year period from 750 to 1150. That said, way back in the 1st century, the Roman author Pliny the Elder mentions a land in the faraway northwest that he calls Scandinavia, basically Denmark and Norway. The word itself may mean dangerous land on the water, So perhaps there was already a sense, 700 years before our actual Vikings, that you don't mess with those northern seafaring people. As for the word Viking itself, again, I'm sorry, we're not 
totally sure. It might just derive from a place named Vic. It could be the old English word wick, which means an armed camp. Or, as quite a few experts reckon, it might be from the old Icelandic word vik, meaning a bay or creek. Whatever its etymology, the word comes to have a distinct connotation. And we've got a long boat full of experts for this episode, and they broadly agree. Viking means something like pirate. I guess like any historical expression like that, it's something that we've constructed to, to, to make sense of the past. But if you go back to the word Viking, it means very mainly a pirate, quite simply. And That's me, Professor Soren Michael Sinbeck of the Department of Archaeology and Heritage Studies at Aarhus University. I caught up with him in Denmark on my first step in the journey to understand the Vikings. Soren specialises in urban archaeology, focusing on how cities all over the world were connected to each other in the Viking Age and how that began to change things for Europe and way beyond. And to me, this is an age which Northern Europe, which the area we're talking about when we're dealing with the Viking Age, in Northern Europe is characterised by a lot of cultural and economic and all sorts of transformations that basically have to do with what happened when sailing ships became a major thing in societies. And sailing ships are one of those things that societies either have or don't have, and if they have them, they have them all over. Because it's such an investment for a traditional society to maintain that knowledge and all that technology. And, and that's what happens in the Viking Age, that uh, people in the north of Europe is taking over that technology and bang, lots of things happen. Hello, Sarah. <laughs> Hello. Am I parked correctly? Perfectly. Okay. As long as you're not on the cycle path. Sure. Uh, um, you, it's fine. Is that okay? Yeah, no, the cycle path. You are a bit on the cycle path. Am I? Okay. Uh, you, Welcome aboard our second expert, Assistant Professor Sarah Kwa, one of Soren's colleagues at Aarhus University. I met her at her home where my darling buff took issue with my parking. Anyway, Sarah's done a ton of interesting research, including an analysis of a wonderful archaeological find that depicts a female warrior on a piece of jewellery. But that's getting ahead of myself. She offers some more nuance on the term Viking. Uh, so we connect them primarily with Scandinavia as, as their homelands. Um, but the activities that we connect with them to place primarily outside of Scandinavia. So it's the, the raiding, it's the trading, it's all that. It's this expansion uh, seawards uh, from Scandinavia. So it's not an ethnic term. It's not uh, an, an identity as such. Uh, so it shouldn't be equated with... Scandinavians, like not everyone living in Scandinavia in this period that we call the Viking Age, were Vikings uh, engaged in those activities. It covers a lot of uh, the aspects. It's, it's a seaborne mm. activity that involves plundering. The term, well, we, we find the term in some Viking Age runestones, late Viking Age runestones, uh, where it's described, well, well, it's used to describe an activity so that you're going on Viking, um, which means basically an, an expedition. Yes. Um, and that expedition can have several purposes, seemingly. Mm. 
it's to gain something. Yeah. And it was always positive for the Vikings, where, you know, an expedition, whereas those maybe who were on the receiving end of plundering of course probably <laughs> saw it more, more like piracy. So the nation-state, as we understand it nowadays, was not a thing back in this period and wouldn't be for centuries. The big political reality in Viking times was the Carolingian Empire. That's the massive European empire, basically all of Western Europe, conquered by Charlemagne and his successors from about 760 right through to the late 9th century. One of the key unifying factors in this Carolingian Empire was, of course, Christianity. Charlemagne himself had received a blessing from the Pope and he was declared to be the Holy Roman Emperor. He was thought to be a new Constantine, helping to expand Christianity throughout the world. By contrast, the ethnic groups that made up the Vikings, as we've come to call them, were more tribal in nature. Small regional groups would give their loyalty to particular leaders. So you'd think of yourself as a follower of Olaf or Sven or Canute. But they did speak the same language, Old Norse, and they shared a lot of cultural elements like costume, art and religion. They also shared a love of plundering. Nomine patri et fili et spiritus sancti, pater noster So just uh, tell me the time frame we normally think of as Old Norse culture. So the, the Viking Age is usually said to have started in uh, 793 when a, a Viking fleet came and sacked the monastery of Lindisfarne, uh, an undefended and incredibly rich monastery and shrine to St. Cuthbert uh, off the north the northeast coast of, of England. And that's usually thought to be like the start of the Viking Age. Welcome aboard our third expert, Professor Michael Drought. Michael is both Professor of English and Director of the Centre for the Study of the Medieval at Wheaton College in Massachusetts, not to be confused with the Christian Liberal Arts College of the same name over in Chicago. Michael is an author and editor specialising in Anglo-Saxon and medieval literature, and he's done this great audio course on the Viking Age, which I've done and thoroughly recommend. It's in the Modern Scholar series. I caught up with him in Massachusetts, where he talked me through the significance of the first great Viking raid on England. They chose a pretty soft target, the Monastery of Lindisfarne. I don't understand. Why would they leave such treasures unprotected? Is there some some spell or some magic which protects them? It appears not. <laughs> Perhaps they think their god protects them. If this is their god, then he's dead. It's nailed to the cross. He cannot protect anyone. He's not alive like Odin, Thor, or Frey. What use is he then? <laughs> That's from the show Vikings, which has our Scandinavian adventurers bursting onto the international scene with the destruction of Lindisfarne. The fact is, archaeological evidence tells us the Vikings were trading and raiding long before 793. I mean, way over in the east, in Estonia, they found the remains of some Scandinavian men who'd all met violent ends sometime in the middle of the 700s, and they were buried in formal fashion inside their boat. 
There are also some 8th century graves back in Norway that contain objects which had obviously come from the British Isles. So stuff was going on before Lindisfarne in 793, even if the Lindisfarne raid really was a dramatic escalation. Um, but there really had been this period of uh, almost 250 years where nobody was attacking England. So this was quite a surprise. And so that's usually considered the Viking Age, like when I do it in round numbers, um, within the context of Anglo-Saxon, let's just say it's it's 800 to 900 is its peak. But you usually would say the Viking Age goes from the the 750s or so um, though the, not, there's no records or written stuff in the for the earliest part of it, um, and, and continues you know, fizzles out around 1200. So our pirates are trading and raiding all around the Baltic Sea, and they're in contact with the Irish and English all around the 700s. By the 830s, Viking longships are pillaging down the western coast of Europe. In 841, they pop over to Dublin and establish a permanent camp there, which is why lots of place names in Ireland are Viking words. In the 850s, some of them raid France and Spain and left us further evidence. In the 860s, some Viking communities head east and settle down in Russia. And in the 870s, famously, they're even able to found permanent colonies in England. The Vikings got around and did a lot. And yet somehow they still kept their home base of Denmark strong. I travelled from Aarhus via Sarah's home in the countryside and on to one of the most important medieval cities in Denmark, the oldest we know of. Reba on the west coast. I wanted to meet the man in charge of the wonderful Reba Museum. I'm trying to find Morten Solzer. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but Tangier 6B, 6A. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. <laughs> 6C. Oh yeah, come on, Dixon. Aha. All right. Mask on. Morton, John Dixon. Ah, thank you so much. You That's our fourth crew member, Morton Sobso. Morton is a medieval archaeologist based in Reba on the west coast of Denmark. He's the head curator of archaeology at the yeah. Museum of Southwest Jutland. Some political events also happened which had a lot of effect on the Viking attacks because um, in the uh, 8th and 9th century the Kingdom of Denmark was very strong uh, and uh, we can see that even the Franks, uh, they didn't dare to attack us and when they tried they got beat up. Uh, so uh, quite contrary to <laughs> the state of affairs today, uh, the Danish kingdom was actually very strong in the 8th and 9th century. But in the middle of the 9th century, uh, some pretenders to the throne clashed in a giant battle and uh, they almost killed uh, each other, uh, all of them. So the entire uh, royal lineage was more or less wiped out. And from the second half of the 9th century, there is no control with uh, what, what's going on in Denmark. So. Um, every uh, aristocrat 
uh, he can put together his own fleet and try his luck. And, and then we see a lot of uncontrolled rape and pillaging also happening in the, uh, in the British Isles and Vikings actually coming both from southern Scandinavia and from Norway and also from Sweden. Uh, they are actually gathering up uh, and are creating this great heathen army that you can read about that was a menace uh, in, in the British Isles. The development of such large-scale threat was a gradual process. Scandinavia was made up of many small, independently-minded tribal groups with their own customs, fenced in by natural barriers like forests, mountains and waterways. But as their history progressed, these people groups were unified under stronger and stronger military leaders. I asked Sarah Kwa about it. How were they organised and ruled? Because they, they weren't one ethnicity, as you've said. They weren't one nation state, I guess until Harald, but originally they're, how are they organized? Are they chieftains and? I think you should probably think of it more as, um, as polities, like entities, uh, groups of population, which are uh, following chieftains. Um, which are settled in, in territories and who control those territories can be flexible. So the boundaries can be flexible as well. Um, so we, we know already in the early 9th century, um, they, had, they were kings of the Danes. And that's an important precision that they were kings over people, mm-hmm. not over a country or a territory, mm-hmm. which of course include some kind of territorial dimension, but it's mostly being the king of people, being recognized by those people as their kings. There are a lot of Scandinavians. Today it's very fashionable to, to mention that this was probably a polyglot and polyethnic society. And like any real maritime society, of course it was. One of the things that happens when you start sailing about is that, you well, strange connections are being made. And today we've got DNA that shows you that people got around like we always expected them to but now we, we can see the actual trace of well celtic mothers coming to norway or norwegians ending up in the british isles and, and all that but one thing that always impressed me was if you look at place names in sort of atlantic europe along the coasts of, of well the british isles and even down to to continental europe there's this fringe of Scandinavian place names along the coast that shows you that that connectivity, the lingua franca for that was a Scandinavian language. You can't say that it was Norwegian or Danish or Swedish because those have sort of split out uh, since that. But it was the Norse language and those people who spoke that language which made the Viking Age a Viking Age. There were all sorts of people on board those ships and all sorts of people involved in the, in the encounters and conflicts. During the early 700s, we're getting the creation of towns and increasing centralisation of power among chieftains, increased productivity and trade. It all sounds pretty successful. So what prompted the explosion in Viking raids? Soren Sindbeck. Well, that's one of the million dollar questions. But when we ask a question like that, we always need to remember that what we're asking in a historical or archaeological setting is, is what caused something to happen? Right there, right there, right then. It's not enough to say, well, ships caused it because uh, people became more mobile. But there was a constellation of things which came out right at that time. 
for, for this change to happen. If we go back a few centuries before, we know that in the first century uh, AD, the Romans were quite interested in that expeditions to Scandinavia. And what they found at that time was an area that well, basically they couldn't find somebody to trade with. So they decided sort of to keep it on their horizon. Um, but when we get to the 8th century, it's a completely changed world. For one thing, well, Anglo-Saxons have come to the British Isles. They're very interested in... Okay, one day we're going to do a whole episode on the Anglo-Saxons, the Venerable Bede, Albert the Great, King Athelstan, and all of that. All we need to know for now is that Germanic tribes migrated to Britain, peacefully or otherwise, around the year 500, give or take, and they mixed with the local British residents to form what we call the Anglo-Saxons. They ended up converting to Christianity around the year 600 and then flourishing under the influence of the monasteries and churches and semi-stable kingdoms like Essex, Wessex, Mercia and so on. And Anglo-Saxon traders and missionaries had their eyes fixed on the north of Europe. The traders wanted riches. The missionaries wanted souls. British Isles, they're very interested in um, their close cousins on the continental side. There is a lot of traffic on the North Sea developing between the Christians in England and uh, the continent. And to some extent, I think that was the traffic that spilled over. We can see all the the Anglo-Saxon missionaries had a lot of interest in going east and, well, first to the old Saxons that are in their books, but also to other people there. They were probably, they were there before the Scandinavians took up sailing. And what was their... We're going to hear a lot more about the missionaries who ventured into the dangerous north, mostly in part two of this Viking special next episode. But there is an important point to make here. A popular perception of the Viking conversion, if people even think about the Vikings becoming Christians, is that Christianity must have been imposed on them from above. The story is more complicated than that. Missionaries were trying to reach the north before the Vikings set sail to England and Europe, and they kept coming back. And what was there with them were these special places that we call Emporia, or historians and archaeologists today call Emporia, trading places that were like small towns, but they were there specifically to facilitate the sea traffic. And to to map the spread of Emporia from first in the Channel area, places like Southampton or London, and then on to uh, the North Sea area where Weber in Denmark comes up around 700, and then on to the real Scandinavian world of uh, Norway and Sweden, where where things start happening in places like Birka in Sweden in the late 8th century. That's almost like mapping the emergence of the Viking Age. Sarah Kwa and Morten Sovso are both archaeologists who've done a lot of work in Reba, the great Viking trading town and the oldest town in Denmark. It was in a place like this that Vikings heard about the Christian god from daring missionaries and saw with their own eyes some of the riches of a flourishing England and southern Europe. Add to this the political unrest in Denmark just mentioned with the death of many of the royals and you end up with a lot of restless warriors willing to try their luck in those other lands. But what made the Vikings think they could conquer these foreign places? We have 
knowledge of some very strong political entities um, in the continental region, well, the Carolingian Empire, mm. um, which I don't believe would have been perceived as a particularly weak or vulnerable mm. uh, target, which mm. could easily be taken. Um, I've also been wondering whether there was... Um, a matter of just knowing the po the, the possibilities, um, because throughout the already the seventh and especially in the eighth century, uh, trading contacts between southern Scandinavia, especially through Ribe, begin to extend uh, towards the North Sea region um, and then connected to well the British Isles, but also to the Rhineland um, and. All those monasteries in, in the Upper Rhineland, which were controlling a lot of production and uh, who were also trading uh, their goods or getting other people to trade them for them. Um, so I, would, I was just wondering if, if through those contacts, uh, if the knowledge also spread that there were those places, the monasteries, um, not necessarily those of the Rhineland, maybe more the, the, the more isolated one in the British Isles, which were places of great wealth, uh, extremely valuable, small portable wealth that you can just easily take in a bag. Um, and not well defended. And not well defended, mm. exactly. Um, so that I'm just thinking that some opportunists would have thought that this is actually very easy. That's easy money. We could, <laughs> well, we basically have the boats I and mean, they, they were developing the technology of, of, um, of sailing. Uh, we don't know exactly when, but probably in the course of the, uh, of the eighth century. Um, and well, on the one end, they, they had the tool, sailing ships, um, and yeah, the possibility of, probably earning some relatively easy money. And it seems that it just took off in a way. Morten Sovso. I think it was a mixture of motives. Of course, it was a way to um, make some money or make a fortune for yourself. And you could ask, why didn't they do it in the 8th century and so on? But, but generally, the 8th century was quite peaceful in, in Northern Europe. And this is perhaps a bit unsubstantiated, but uh, have you heard about a climate phenomenon known as the late antique Little Ice Age? Mm. What happened after a massive volcanic eruption in AD 536? What seems to have happened in Northern Europe was that we actually had some very bad years and a lot of people died from famine, perhaps also from this Justinian plague, which uh, also was a phenomenon from the in the 540s. So it seems that the population numbers in Denmark dropped to a real minimum. And for a long period after that, there was enough room for everybody. So we see a growing population and an expansion during the 7th and 8th century. And perhaps during the 9th century, they have sort of filled out the frameworks of the landscapes of Denmark. But they are still having a lot of uh, uh, new babies and so on. So perhaps there was a population surplus Perhaps there wasn't enough land for everybody any longer. So during the ninth century, there might have been a lot of young men who weren't able to take over daddy's farmstead. So they had to find something for themselves. So that 
I think is also a motive that we have more young men who are looking for something to do. So I think that's a reason why we see the Viking raiding taking place from the 9th century and, and, and onwards. But you have to see it also in the light of all the political events happening in the Viking homelands, because they were, of course, also being affected by also the warriors that returned with fortunes and new customs and, and so on. So this Viking raiding also brought back a lot of cultural impulses from uh, the places that they visited. <laughs> yes. And Michael Drought says these communal experiences resulted in the creation of highly effective military tactics. Part of it is that they, they, they somehow, you know, formed these incredibly strong sort of social teams, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, and one of the sort of side evidence pieces for that is when we find Viking hordes, everything is chopped into bits. So they might have, you know, stolen a beautiful gem-encrusted cross. It is hacked apart into pieces and the gems are pried off and, and so forth. And it seems to be that, that this is totally like what my students would call wacky drought theory. Uh, but wacky drought theory is this is a way of keeping absolute peace among a peace among this band of highly aggressive, violent people, heavily armed. Everybody gets the same amount. They didn't need to do that. Except that this pro, you know, creates unit cohesion. I think the Vikings were, they fought in sort of small uh, teams. So when you see a, like a depiction of this, or when you read the Anglo-Saxon uh, material where their Vikings are beating them, it seems they've lined up and formed a shield wall, yeah. right? I think the Vikings fought in these little, like, little units of, say, four people. Two of them probably whose whole job was to hold a shield and make sure the legs didn't get cut of the, the people in there. And then someone who's standing behind that kind of, so two people with shields, two people with swords or axes, and then one piece, person with a long spear or a pole arm fighting over the top. And if you try to fight that with a shield wall or with the everybody run down the hill going, ah, you know, like it looks so good in the Lord of the Rings when they do it, but if you, you're going to lose. And I think that that kind of small unit tactics. And then the other thing that, that I've gotten this from Tom Shippey is that when you read between the lines of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Vikings did... Professor Thomas Shippey is a British scholar of Middle and Old English literature and an expert on J.R.R. Tolkien to boot. His expertise on ancient documents like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle help colour in what we know of Viking raids in England. The Vikings didn't bring provisions with them. They didn't, they were smash and grab, and they were also smash steel horses, and then uh, they would, the, they would have outriders that would go up the side of either river, uh, of either side of the river, looting and stealing and getting their provisions that way while the ships stayed uh, going up the middle of the river. So I think it was really sophisticated tactics, unit cohesion, and then this sort of whether you want to call it an ideology or, or just a, a culture of th that they really did believe it's okay to die as long as you do it in a cool way, as, as long as you're not running away as, and, and that, that, I mean, think about it. That's how we motivate our own troops to this day, unit cohesion 
and and the ideal that uh, you know we don't tell our I don't think we tell our soldiers like oh don't worry you know if you get you're going to be in heaven we tell them we show them we're going to remember your name forever we're going to carve it into stone we're going to have services and we're going to never forget and uh, I think that's really I mean I know it's really powerful to 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 young men to know that they won't be forgotten as long as they you know stick with their with their with their mates and and I think that that's what uh the Vikings came from a very flat uh society not that there weren't kings and nobles and a lot of slaves and and and, and thralls and so forth but it didn't have the many many steps of of ranks and so forth that their opponents had and so like the Vikings quickly learned like just kill the officer and then everybody run away but if you kill the Viking leader, there was just a bunch of other people like, well, we're still going to fight. Just to clarify, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is a year-by-year history gathered together in the 9th century, then copied, expanded and distributed throughout the monasteries of England. Plenty of things are omitted and it's all pretty one-sided, but the Chronicle gives us tons of information, some of which we can concretely verify. For example, the Chronicle for the years 865 to 874 speak of a great Viking army in East Anglia that apparently wintered in the country instead of just raiding and then leaving. And the locations of the battle camps are actually given. Sure enough, archaeologists have found those spots, and the camp in Torxey in Lincolnshire covers 55 hectares, or more than 100 American football fields. The Chronicle wasn't inflating the numbers when it spoke of this enormous Viking army. Anyway, there's another source on the Viking side. Sort of. The Icelandic sagas are an amazing collection of oral stories that were eventually written down in the 1200s and later. The sagas tell the tales of famous families and heroes, as well as settlements and voyages, and famous blood feuds. The dragons that occasionally appear probably aren't totally historical, but some of the events are likely actual remembered events. So the historian has to do her best weighing legend and history. Well, it's clearly something in between to me, um, and especially when you work with the Viking Age, it's as, as a discipline, it's really one that forces you to work with any kind of sources you have avail- available, because it's on this tipping point between prehistory and history, like a society with, with some form of literacy, uh, the runic uh, alphabet, uh, but which is not used to, to write texts yet. Um, so we don't have letters between chieftains or anything like that, do we? No. So it, it's just on, on, on the verge of, of two things, which means that, well, you have to use whatever you can as sources. And then the other sources we have is other people talking about the Vikings. Right, yes. So like Paris, Parisians going... Oh, God help us from the Vikings or something like that. Yes, right? like, like the, suddenly 40 ships showed up and they burned uh-huh. everything and they stole all the stuff. I mean, And we have sources of, you know, sort of primary sources that a historian likes? Absolutely. Uh-huh. We have um, Arabic chronicles, for example, because the remember the, the Muslims had expanded into Spain and some Vikings sailed through the Straits of, Straits of Gibraltar and started like trying to sack the Mediterranean. And they, they got as far as the city of, of Luna in um, Italy, a small like walled city that 
according to the records, they thought was Rome. And so they thought they'd sacked Rome and they were like, that wasn't really that hard as they sailed away. These plunderings and sackings brought enormous wealth to the Vikings. Sometimes in Viking settlements, we find beautiful coins from faraway places or lovely Roman glass goblets, which Viking elites filled with their wine. Then there's the Cuerdale Horde. In 1840, workers repairing the embankment on the River Ribble in northwest England uncovered a Viking war chest containing nearly 8,000 gold and silver coins and 1,000 pieces of silver. So there's ingots, ornaments and silver armbands. You'll be pleased to know that the workers were allowed to keep one coin each before Queen Victoria snapped it up and passed it on, eventually to the British Museum. You can check it out next time you're there. But not everything archaeologists dig up is made of the shiny stuff. Well, I think the Viking archaeology that has so many aspects, the first thing that really kicked people's imagination off were the Viking ship burials. The most famous example is the Oseberg ship, which was found in early in the 20th century in Norway, almost fully preserved wooden uh, uh, vessel uh, with lavish uh, grave goods. So Osberg is like the Tutankhamun of uh, Viking archaeology. But that, in a sense, well, it entrenched people's ideas about Vikings as these seaborne warriors. But what I think was important of that, uh, those discoveries and the graves uh, more generally, was that it showed people that this was not what they considered barbarians to be. This was a rich visual culture. Um, There's so much artwork in the Wolfsburg uh, grave. And um, some of the early archaeologists from that gen- those generations talk about how those discoveries made historians and well, the general population in Western Europe see Scandinavia differently. So instead of seeing the Scandinavian past as this handed down image of barbarians, almost skin clad hunters and, and, and gatherers, it made them aware that, no, this was, this was a different part of our, the culturally sophisticated world of the early Middle Ages. So that was one important bit. Then the next sort of major discovery was in Denmark in the 1930s, and that was the what we call the ring fortresses, uh, geometric ring fortresses. The first to be found was the fortress Trelleborg on the island Schellen. And I think it was 1934 when it was realized that this earthwork, which was on a field somewhere, was not part of something medieval, but went back to the 10th century. What was spectacular about it was that it was a very sizable monument. It was more than uh, 160 meters in diameter. It was painstakingly geometrically designed. So with perfectly round ramparts and a system of these square blocks of houses, it looked, well, like some version of a Roman fortress. And this came as such a shock to historians and archaeologists at the time, because that was not at all how you had imagined Vikings or the Viking Age. It was so organized. And it took most of the 20th century, actually, to really sort of grasp what that story was about. How could you reconcile these stories about boat crews raiding the coast of Western Europe with something that was so organized and eventually, I think we have, we have managed to make that reconciliation and see how the, the military and the political side of the Viking Age was 
just as sophisticated and complex, the artistic side. There's still uh, discoveries being made uh, for uh, um, within that uh, field. For many years, we thought that there were four and just four of these fortresses that had taken care of one region of uh, the Danish kingdom each. And then just six years ago, I and uh, some colleagues actually uh, discovered a new fortress just south of Copenhagen, which has changed again a lot of ideas about how this worked and how it fits into the, the, the political history of the Viking Age. So archaeology keeps changing our uh, missions. And well, it's it's it's. I think these are some of the the, the most spectacular discoveries. Archaeology is a powerful tool in the search for the true history of the Vikings. But let's get back to the sagas, because they continue to capture the public's imagination. Apart from anything, if you like The Lord of the Rings, that whole vibe comes from the sagas. Tolkien loved the sagas and based his imaginative world on them. Some of the most important sagas were written down by Snorri Sturluson. I know this sounds like a Disney character, but Snorri was a real Icelandic poet, scholar and politician who lived and worked in the 1200s, so well into Iceland's Christian era. Snorri's works, like the important Prose Edda, weave legend and history into an epic whole that has to be taken with a grain or two of North Sea salt. For the later Icelandic sources, it's it's more delicate, I'd say, um, to me, they're, they're an inspiration uh, more than... Uh, well, they, they offer a, the reflection of medieval Icelanders on their past. Um, and, and that, if, if this is your research question, if you're interested in knowing how did Icelanders perceive their own past, what was, what was the memory of it, what, uh, how did they understood it, then it's a fascinating source. For me, working with South Scandinavia in the 8th, 9th, 10th century, uh, to me, the distance is a bit too big. Um, So as an inspiration to have in the back of my head, yes. But I don't think I would... For for some questions, they're very relevant, excellent sources, less so for others. Understood. But that applies to all sources. Of course, of course. They're only good if the question is... We have all these wonderful tales and stories from the Middle Ages. Certainly the best remembered are the Icelandic sagas, which have such vivid descriptions of the Viking Age. Is this Snorri? It's Snorri, but not just Snorri. It was a whole culture, literary culture, that evolved in the 12th, 13th, 14th century in Iceland with vernacular literature that very much looked back to the Viking Age. The, The Icelanders at that time weren't too keen to talk about contemporary events, but they were very keen to uh, relate their stories about the, especially the pagan past. And there's lots in those stories which is, well, has been genuinely passed down, either quite accurately at sometimes in the poetry, the scaldic verses that were great poems composed by famous scalds or poets, and which were orally transmitted generation to generation because they had rhymes and um, so jokes. People, yeah, pe- so people regard them today as pretty accurate. And based on them, the tales sort of well kept a certain shape. 
But we can also say, of course, that lots were left out, lots were added to them. So we have these tales and that, I think, in, on a global scale, that's what really still fires people's imagination about the Vikings. But we need, of course, archaeology today to get a more nuanced picture. And that's what, what still is evolving a lot. We have the sagas, we've had them for centuries, but archaeology in, over the course of the last century has told such a new story uh, and is still uh, bringing up surprises. There are some ways that you can actually try and confirm or find other evidence to substantiate what is being said in the sagas, and, and that's all the archaeological finds. And of course, most of them are mute, but if you find a piece of jewelry which has a depiction of a person or a figure that seems to be uh, something from the sagas or of something from the life of Odin and Thor and so on, and if you find many of these objects within a given region and so on, then some patterns start to appear. And also, in recent years, quite a lot of pagan temples have actually been found in Scandinavia. So we can actually see that the ritual feasting uh, and the offering and so on that is being described in the sagas actually took place. So uh, what we are hearing about in the sagas seems to be confirmed by the archaeological evidence. So I think the general trend is that some decades ago, the scholarship was very critical towards many of the sagas, but it has turned around in recent decades. Now it seems more this, as if we are actually confirming what, is, uh, what we read in, in the sagas. But what are we to make of the heroes of the sagas? Ragnar Lothbrook, Ragnar Hairy Pants, true story, Ivar the Boneless, Eric Bloodaxe, or the gods, Odin, Thor, and beautiful Freya. All of that after the break. This episode is sponsored by Zondervan's new book, Four Views on Heaven, edited by Michael Whitmer. If I asked you, what do you think heaven will look like? I reckon you've maybe got a picture already in your mind. It's, you know, coloured by popular culture. It's, you know, harps and angels and floating around on clouds. But what if I asked you, you know, what will you do in heaven? Uh, will you be able to play your guitar in heaven? Will you be able to go fishing in heaven? These are practical questions. The thing is, even Christians don't often have clear answers to what heaven will be like and what we'll do in heaven. We fluff around the edges, muddle things up and splutter something about hope and being with God and all that. That's why a book like Four Views of Heaven exists, because the fact is the Christian vision of heaven is a little blurry. And true to the title, there are four different views. Uh, not all of them I agree with, but it's worth understanding them. In one view, our destiny is to leave earth and live forever in heaven, where we rest, worship and serve God. In another, we're saved to live forever with Jesus on a fully restored planet able to play guitar and all that. In another view, sort of in between those first two, uh, there's a kind of heaven meets earth reality. And then there's the classic Catholic view of actually seeing God face to face for eternity. But I'm telling you, a book like this sets up the arguments, uh, the debates 
in a brilliant way. Please go out and get it. Uh, Four Views of Heaven, edited by Michael Whitmer. It's available to order at Amazon, of course, or head to zondervan.com for details. In Tanzania, people living with a disability suffer discrimination and social isolation. They also have trouble finding employment and education opportunities. Nearly half of people living with a disability in Tanzania can't read or write. In some cases, they're even denied medical care or access to services that offer food and shelter. Anglican Aid is changing this by supporting the Kurugwe Disability Program in the Kagira region of Tanzania. The program offers dedicated medical care and rehabilitation to people living with disabilities, as well as giving them access to education and a pathway to employment. It's fantastic. You can help Anglican Aid support the life-changing work of the Kurugwe Disability Program by visiting anglicanaid.org. Dot au. That's anglicanaid.org.au. Thanks so much. Sailing south by southeast, we come upon the mouth of the Seine, the gateway to Paris. Several rivers empty themselves into the sea, and the reefs and mudflats are dangerous. But here is the entrance. The entrance to paradise. The TV series Vikings tells the little-known story of the Viking attack on the city of Paris in 845. The series purports to take us into the mysterious world of Ragnar Lothbrok, a Viking warrior and farmer, so the publicity says, who yearns to explore and raid the distant shores across the ocean. That fits with the fact that a Viking army did indeed sail up the Seine to Paris and committed atrocities along the way, like hanging a hundred or so Frankish men by the river as a kind of calling card. The old cliché of the Vikings as vengeful murderers is sometimes right. Well, there is a truth in it. See, one indication that, that this is so is actually the memory that the Icelanders built up in the sagas. Anyone who read Egil's saga or Njal's saga will recognise this picture. Mind you, this is a picture built up by people looking back on what they saw as their pagan past. So there are deliberately portraying these ancestors as badasses. Nial's saga, by the way, is an anonymous saga, probably written in the 13th century. It tells of a series of rollicking Viking blood feuds back in the 900s. But some of the, some of the values that are projected in the sagas are quite likely to be true, in part because the warrior mentality that they express uh, and uh, especially the male code of honour, was true to an extent for most societies in uh, Western and Northern Europe at the time. But at least for much of the Viking Age, remember, this was a society which was not tempered 
by Christian ideology, the way that Western rulers uh, had, had uh, and, and well, Westerners in general had accepted uh, Christianity. The Sermon on the Mount hadn't quite made it to, uh, to Denmark in the ninth century. No, exactly. Hey, just to be clear, the Vikings weren't the only violent people in the Middle Ages. The Christian lands didn't extol the ethic of vengeance and blood feud that was central to Viking law, but they certainly did get involved in the so-called plundering economy. I think it's largely correct, um, because that's just what you did back then. They were uh, described this way already in their own time, um, especially on the continent and the British Isles, by those on the receiving end. But then again, this this plundering economy, uh, this way of collecting tributes from from other populations using violence, um, it's it's not unique to them. There were plenty of other groups throughout early medieval Europe who were doing just the same thing. Mm. Uh, and when you read about the, the, the Saxon wars, Charlemagne's campaign towards the Saxon, it, it also seems to have been extremely gruesome. Um, so it's, I don't think they were necessarily uh, enjoying violence as such more than the others. The sagas contain much more than stories drenched in the blood of Viking victims. In collections like Snorri's Prose Edda, we learn about mysterious warriors, male and female, as well as the weird and wonderful world of the Norse gods. What can we tell from the archaeological record and from any reliable elements of the literary record about pre-Christian religion? This is something that we've learned quite a lot about in recent years. When I was a student, uh, some 25 years ago. It was still believed that uh, there had been no temples, for instance, that all uh, religious practice was something about going out into uh, the grooves and uh, sacrificing or um, making sacrifices in water. and all that. But then since the early 2000s, we've started to find what must be temple buildings. And we now have a, well, a, a little handful of them where special practices very clearly took place. And we now can see that there wasn't a sort, that sort of institutionalized religion. And another thing which has appeared uh, in very recent time is the evidence that comes up from uh, private metal detecting. So in, in the UK and in Denmark, uh, there's quite a liberal law for private metal detecting. And in Denmark in particular, that has led to literally hundreds of thousands of artifact finds, things that were kicking about in the plow soil and we're not helping anyone. It's, so it's not like we're looting stuff. It's it's thing that had become lost and detached at some point, and now it's retrieved. And among that, from that evidence, we find hundreds of amulets and religious objects that tells us a story that we didn't know about, about the personal religion of people not just what happened uh, in the uh, halls of the great chieftains, but uh, much more diverse practices. So we find amulets that were clearly speak to our idea about Vikingness, if you will. I still find it quite striking that these are people who uh, find it natural to use a sword or a spear or an axe as a miniature amulet, because that's the stuff that protects us. But, but there are other things as well. There are 
wheels, which may be related to cults. And there are these extraordinary images of men and women in special uh, situations, as one colleague has expressed it. People who uh, seem to be engaging in rituals. Um, it's a little unclear whether they're actually deities uh, or they are ritual performers. But perhaps the ritual performers is how you imagine the deity. So it could be both at the time. And these are, well, quite striking and thought-provoking figures. The best uh, known today are what we call the Valkyries, because they show people in a female dress but carrying weapons. The Valkyries, potent harmonies of womanly beauty and warlike ferocity. Suitable inspiration for the wild music of Richard Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. They've featured in countless pieces of art, from paintings to poetry, and they've even made key character status in Marvel's Thor Ragnarok, which is a movie. Right? (laughs) So what are the Valkyries? The Icelandic sagas describe them as female war demons, whose job, in part, is to take the best fallen warriors to Valhalla, the feasting hall of the god Odin, the All-Father. Sarah Qua was involved in the analysis of an important piece of jewellery, a pendant, uncovered in Riba. It depicts a woman wearing weapons and armour. But Sarah's published research is hesitant to see this as evidence of the famous shield maidens we see on Netflix. So our warrior woman on the pendant isn't necessarily an earthly female warrior, but am I right that there there is evidence of female warriors like um, in grave sites? Yeah. So the conclusion was that well, they don't have to refer to mythological figures like to, to those mythological Valkyries, but they can actually refer to real life people doing extraordinary things, mm. like women dressing as warriors in a ritual context are normal people doing extraordinary things. Well, normal and normal. Um, so it's more this context. It can be real life. Yes. But transgressing yes. Yes. something that would have seen as, as a norm. Yes. Um, mm. Does it make sense? It does. Yeah. Because, I mean, in ancient Rome, they had Saturnalia where um, they transgressed the norms. Exactly. I mean, transgressing norms is, is quite well-documented, like, ritual device. Mm. And if you want to achieve, mm. I mean, going back to all ritual, ritual theory and so on, if your point is to achieve a transformation of the world through the ritual, uh, then transgressing the order and then putting the order back into mm. place. This is following rit- ritual theory. It's just, yes. like, textbook. Yeah. Um, so that's maybe a way of explaining this seemingly transgressive behavior. Yeah. And so the women soldiers in graves, are they real women soldiers or are they being buried in a ritual fashion? Yeah. Um, I think both are possible. 
Um, I will not exclude the fact that some women may have been active on the battlefield in the Viking Age. Uh, theoretically, it's entirely possible, um, and I don't see the why not. If that is necessarily what the graves are showing us, I'm not quite sure. Mm. Um, for, well, a bunch of reasons. Um, the first is, to me, that this question needs to be applied to the male graves being buried with weapons as well. Um, does the weapon necessarily make the warrior? Mm. Um, it's, it's a burial ritual representative context um, where someone is being commemorated, where the per this person's status is being like crystallized through all the things that are being done and all the objects that are being put down in the grave. Um, so it's a construction. Um, so as such, it doesn't have to fit what the person was in life. And you also have examples at Bieke itself, where now the very famous uh, armed female grave has been found, um, being buried with, with adult-sized weapons, which they would never have been able to even lift. Um, so maybe they were, um, but there could also be other reasons um, for for inhuming someone in this way. And again, I think something that's really important to emphasize in that discussion is that there are a bunch of examples of biologically female graves uh, being buried with weapons, and I think they're extremely interesting. But there are a very little marginal <laughs> portion of the buried population we have overall for Viking Age Scandinavia. So, I, and I'm more than happy to see them as very exceptional individuals. And it's also fascinating to look at the exceptional, but this is also what they are. Um, it doesn't necessarily say much about how it was to be a woman in the Viking Age overall, um, because this, we're talking about the 1.1, well, 0.1% of, uh, of a population there. So many women. Who would have thought? They're as brave as the men. Sometimes they are much braver than the men. And the most fierce, her name is Lagatha. Lagatha was one of the legendary shield maidens from another of the 13th century Icelandic sagas, the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok. And she's a key character in the Netflix Vikings series. We just heard a scene I remember well from season four. Actually, I asked Sarah straight up what she thought of these recent Viking series. She said she really tried to like them, but just couldn't. There are just too many modern projections onto this historical landscape. And one of them seems to be those legions of female Viking warriors. Such a bummer. I wish I hadn't asked the question. But what about religion proper? Soren Sinbeck and the others I spoke with are a little wary of the accounts of Viking religion in these sagas. The sagas, remember, were written down in the later Christian era, and that might have coloured the retelling. One of the interesting things these scholars point out is that it may be better to relate Viking religion to the earlier Greek and Roman religious outlooks. 
I think that's that's what we need to that's where we need to start our imagination. And that's quite different from what tradition has had, because we we need to remember that our our tradition, our sources for Viking Age religion, has been handed down from a Christian tradition. And their idea about cults and ritual was a very different one. They were aware of, of, of church ceremonies and sometimes also of processions and uh, religious feasts, but not of that kind of liminal craziness almost that occurs in, in this old pagan tradition. And I wouldn't be surprised if we could, well, if we could trace it, that there was an, uh, certainly a co-evolution, but also a direct connection between uh, the kind of feasts we see in pagan Greece and Rome and what we find in the Viking world. Morton Sovso agrees. On a structural level, of course, it's a pantheon of gods. It's actually influenced by the Roman gods. Uh, they go back to the Germanic times and so on. Uh, so, so that's sort of the, the basic concept. And of course, uh, very uh, different from uh, monotheism, uh, which, which was to follow. Um, and we don't even know if actually there might be some regional differences in the religious practice because some gods might, might have been uh, more worshipped in, in some regions than others. Uh, there might have been uh, some kings who worshipped one Norse god more than others, and so on. There are some, there could, there are a few signs of that, but it's very, very difficult to to say anything about it. But I'm a bit positive if we look at the huge material for metal detecting, because I think that gives us some patterns of what. Uh, at least found its way into the artwork of the period. But of course, all these thousands of finds, uh, they need to be processed and so on. And, and that's not really happening at the moment. But, but I think that over time, uh, we will be able to learn uh, some more about it. But it's, it's very difficult to, uh, to give a, a clear and concise description about what religions was, was like for a a Viking. Yeah. There might have been huge differences and, and there's also, of course, there's the uh, official pantheon of gods, the Odin and Thor and so on. But then, of course, there's all the uh, elves and, and so the, all the uh, small people uh, that people believed in and uh, who sort of lived out in the villages or had a coexistence with people, the sort of folk religion. Yeah. Uh, out in the individual farmsteads and so on, they believed that there were small people living underground and they put out food for them and so on. Uh, just the way as it has been going on right up until the uh, early 20th century in, in most parts of Denmark out in rural areas. Like tooth fairies. And yeah, tooth fairies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that yeah that's thing. the same uh, yeah. phenomenon. And, yeah. and you can actually still find it in parts of Europe and so on. Mm. Uh, but, but this sort of folk belief uh, uh, has been a has been probably the most important thing to most people. Hey there, elf. It's me, Lars. I really messed up, and uh, I just wanted to come up here to ask of you guys for any help you can give me. I don't know how I'm going to fix things with Sigrid, but 
I have to try. Okay. Have a good lunch or whatever you're doing in there. Goodbye! Never understood why half this country still believes in elves. I know, but Sigrid swears by them. Iceland continues to have one foot in the dark ages, huh? Fans of Will Ferrell, like producer Kaylee, will recognise his appearance as Lars Eriksson in the movie Eurovision Song Contest, as he pleads with Icelandic elves for help. It might all seem like just a prop for gags at Iceland's expense, but the movie manages to get at a whole side of Viking belief, its folk religion, that appears in the sagas. And right alongside the elves and dwarves are the more famous members of Norse mythology. So most of what we know, almost everything that like you or I have in the back of our heads about Old Norse religion, whether that's you know Ragnarok or the the gods with Odin and Freyr and and Loki and so forth, comes through. Ragnarok is the Armageddon of Viking religion. It's the final battle where everyone turns up: ice giants, the Allfather Odin, Freya, the goddess of love and war, and Loki, the quixotic shapeshifter, and so forth, comes through one person and one set of texts, and that's Snorri Sturluson, the uh, the great Icelandic uh, writer. Uh, the problem with Snorri, for, for the purposes of understanding Viking religion, is that Snorri was a complete, devout, believing Christian. So he didn't believe any of this Old Norse religion was true. And in fact, he euhemerizes it in really sometimes funny ways, like so that the gods are known as the Asir. And Snorri says, that's because they came from Asia, and they were actually just like great chieftains. Though there's there's now a new theory that says that that actually kind of might be right in that it may be a very vague memory of when the Huns came out, colonized parts and, and left like sort of, you know, ruling peoples there. And that this is a vague memory of that. And so maybe the Asir really did come from Asia. So, so do we think Snorri got... Viking religion, right? Or are you saying he's, we don't he's trust transformed? Him? We we can't entirely trust him because one, he knew stuff about um, you know ancient Rome or ancient Greece, so he's creating a pantheon because he thinks you need a pantheon in the same sort of way. And two, so it's all pretty complicated. Some of the religious stuff in Snorri must be historical. Everyone agrees with that, but some of it is likely skewed either by Snorri's Christian perspective or, as it turns out, by his own deep knowledge of the ancient Greek and Roman pantheon, that dysfunctional family of the gods. And two, he's always, he, he leaves out a lot of um, things that he would find uh, offensive. And the reason that we think that is that the archaeology suggests that um, Old Norse religion was highly focused uh, around very bloody sacrifices, tortures, hanging people from trees, oh, hanging human animals, sacrifice. humans, animals, everything. But yes, there's we have we have skeletal remains, uh, people broken over a stone or people thrown in a grave with a with a giant stone thrown in on top of them. We have the, the Sutton Hoo in England. You have hanging victims that were uh, buried in in that cemetery, and you have um, Christian historians who are just like just at the edge of where they'd you know, be able to hear Adam of Bremen, for example, talks about this going and seeing this hideous uh, giant tree with corpses of people and animals hung all all around it. Uh, so Odin is the god of hanging. You know, we get some parts that he hung himself, but it seems that they, they, they hung and, and tortured like a lot of uh, captured people and um, animals uh, for, for the gods that way. And that's, Snorri doesn't want to talk about that. 
These were some of the bits of Norse religion that seemed to have embarrassed Snorri. Now, it's important to point out that Vikings didn't have a clear set of beliefs. Nothing like the Apostles' Creed for Christians. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and so on. The Vikings had more of a worldview that encompassed both the earthly and spiritual realms. Essentially, everything will end at Ragnarok. And some things will then be reborn. And every outcome along the way to that apocalypse is already predetermined by fate. We can't change outcomes. All we can do is act honourably in the Viking sense of honour as we walk the path of our fate. And if you wrong the gods along the way, whether deliberately or accidentally, you just placate them as best you can with a sacrifice, like hanging an animal from a tree in homage to Odin. Uh, Odin's very weird. So he's the father god, he's the most important god, and it doesn't seem that he had a, as nearly as good a cult as other ones. Everybody loves Thor. Right. Thor's your guy. He'll support you. He's, you know, people like Friar and Freya because they'll make the fields fertile or that you can get a kid from them. Odin, like, so one of the things that we know is that um, Old Norse culture from their laws and from some bits in the text was was exceedingly hostile to to anything that that like even hinted at uh, same-sex uh, relations. Like th- you could calling some, saying that about someone was, you, if you said that about someone, they're allowed to kill you back. Like that's how, you know, serious th- that is. And yet Odin has sex with everything and everyone in any possible way. And it's also, there's this, like uh, Old Norse magic is called Scyther. And Snorri and other places says, manly men don't do Scyther, but Odin does. So Odin is in this really weird position of he's, and, and I think part of it, and this is the, the famous line, and um, I think it's Eirikssmal, where a, a dead king comes to, to Valhalla, and they're like, why is he coming up here so soon? It's like, oh, Odin, you know, had him killed to be so he could come up here why and it says because odin doesn't know the hour in which the gray wolf will come so the other thing about like odin knows there's an apocalypse coming from the prophecies and he's building his zombie army to you know protect against that and so that's why if you're a great champion he might strike you down right in the middle of the fight because oh i need that guy up here in valhalla right now but that meant that odin was not a really trustworthy God to have as a protector, because if you were doing really well, he might just jerk the rug out from you, from under you at, at any moment. So that that's sort of what's going on with, um, you know, with Odin. He's the, he's the big one, but people don't worship him nearly as much, except possibly in times of like extremists, like things are going really bad. We need to go make a sacrifice to Odin here. There's one kind of sacrifice I really wanted to get to the bottom of. So I saved up that question for Professor Sindbeck. Does the archaeological records support the idea, one often reads, that Viking religion um, was very focused on sacrifices and blood sacrifices? Um, One even hears of human sacrifices, but animal sacrifices. Tell me what the record tells us. I think yes uh, is the short answer to that. So we find, obviously... Um, evidence of 
animal sacrifice in the shape of skeletons, quite simply. There's a famous find from the uh, chieftain's farm Hofstadir in Iceland of a sort of cache of cattle skulls, cattle that had all been decapitated um, in a um, very striking way where um, we can see from the traces on the bones that they were, well, they were knocked out with a blow to the forehead and then their head was chopped off with a sword while the cattle was still uh, uh, standing. So you'd have a fountain of blood coming forth from this, uh, from the body. Um, <clears throat> we have representations uh, of uh, uh, pictorial representations of sacrifices. I think what but the, the single most striking uh, representation is probably a fragment of tapestry found in the Ulsberg burial, which shows a tree with a whole host of people hanging from the leaves. So this is not something that was invented by uh, Christian authors. This was something which was very much part of that uh, religion. And that's humans, is it? Or just animals? That's humans. That's humans in that tree. And it's not the, it's not the only representation of its kind. There's another famous picture carved in a mountain in uh, Sweden, in Ramsundsberget, which shows a version of the legend of Sigurd, where we also see a well, decapitated person lying on the rock. So, but what we have to remember, I think, in the, when we're talking about sacrifice like that, is that in a pagan ritual like that, um, whenever we have mentions of rituals and bloth, as it's called in the, the Norse sources, there is a mix of social gathering, feast, and religious cults, which is well, quite self-evident when you think about it. People come together, somebody has to host the party. It's an, a great honor to be hosting guests. They have to be fed. The gods have to be fed. So it's, it's what they, the anthropologists in the old days would call a total social event. It's everything in one pot. So sacrifice is also feast. And, and I think that's the part which can sometimes be difficult for the Christian authors to, to quite understand. But I think perhaps today, when we think about folk feasts today, like our, our Christmas traditions have a lot that would make sense to people in the Viking Age. We get together, we have a great feast with, with family, um, and it's all in order of the gods. Sacrifice was central to Viking religion. And you heard it from Professor Sindbeck, this involved human sacrifice. It all raises the question that sent me to Scandinavia in the first place. And we answer it in our next episode. How on earth did these fearsome northerners, who thought it was good to do vengeance and pleasing to the gods to sacrifice even their fellow human beings, end up embracing that Middle Eastern message of love and the end of sacrifice. How did the Vikings become Christians? We 
we've got tons more Viking content that we couldn't even squeeze into a double episode. I accidentally returned from the US and Scandinavia with about five hours of recorded material. Producer Kaylee and director Mark just rolled their eyes. But if you want to hear some of that bonus content and tons of other extras, we're starting a new service at Undeceptions.com. You can become one of our undeceivers and get access to uncut interviews, like my 80-minute conversation with the great Tim Keller, or another couple of interviews we've got on Scandinavian religion after the Vikings. You'll also be invited to a private Facebook group where I'll be answering more listener questions, doing a few live Q&As here and there, and where you'll get the inside running on where we're up to, plus invitations to special events and a whole lot more. Man, I'm exhausted. And pumped. Just go to undeceptions.com and click on the big link, Become an Undeceiver. It'll set you back just $5 Aussie a month, about $3.50 for my American listeners. And all of it goes back into the show so we can keep bringing you this kind of content. Along with the donations, thanks to all those who click that other happy button, this is how we're going to keep Undeceptions thriving. And while you're there, you'll also see links to Laurel Moffat's new podcast, Small Wonders, and Michael Jensen and Megan Paldertois' excellent With All Due Respect, both part of the growing Undeceptions network. Next episode. Well, I already just told you that. The conversion of the Vikings. How on earth? See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Harry Pants Hadley. Editing by Richard Hamwee, social media by Sophie Hawkshaw. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Underception possible. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of Underceptions.com, letting the truth out. An Underceptions podcast.